ding dong. Forget that cheek swab. Go straight to the source. Hi, the ding dong. Michelle. Hello. Georgette. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello. How are you? Robed up and ready to roll? I am robed up. And do you know what? You don't need a pandemic to stay in the robe all day. I'm telling you, I do it. I love it. I love it. I've got a cozy robe on. It's. Do you know what? There's snow on the mountains. Oh. It's time for the robe. I've got the winter robe. I have two robes. I have a summer robe and a winter a robe. A summer robe? What does that look like? Is it a shorty? Shorty robe? <laughs> no, it's a it's a lovely washed linen robe. Oh, and this one's a cozy, nice. cozy robe. Yeah, it is nice. The cozy it's one. Very, nice. very sweet. It looks, a, it looks a little, I have to say. I don't Flammable? Know. <laughs> Flammable. <laughs> yeah, let's say that. Moving on. Michelle, I'd just like to say to everybody here who's listening, hello, welcome back to, or welcome to, eavesdropping the podcast. I'm Geordie. And I'm Michelle, and you are eavesdropping on us, and we like it. You're welcome. <laughs> Go for it. We're not going to complain, are we, Michelle? No. And in fact, tell your friends. The more, the merrier. <laughs> it's a party up in here, up in eavesdropping. <laughs> <laughs> I have some shout-outs. Do you? I was stopped. I was stopped in the street the other day by a lady who I know, but my friend who I was talking to did not know that. So when okay. this lady said to me, I have listened to almost every episode now and I absolutely love it, she thought I had a fan from that, some random person who just recognised me, like what happened to you when you were in my neighbourhood once. And somebody said, that's the lady from eavesdropping. <laughs> it's because our videos are iconic. <laughs> if I do say so myself. No, they are ridiculous. But anyway. <laughs> well, Marielle, thank you for sticking with us. Marielle's a lovely lady who I've met and know, and I told her to listen. <laughs> she didn't stumble upon it. And she said that she's almost listened to everyone. Against my better judgment, I said to her, don't go back to the beginning. But she did. She's listened from the very first episode. So she's listened to us progress and get production-wise values much better over time, and she's really enjoying it. Oh, well done. Thank you. Keep listening, Mariel, but maybe just put some earphones in. There's a lot of small children in your house, and I'd hate for them to hear the F and the C words on constant repeat. F and Jeff and all over the place. I've got another shout-out to a friend, an old friend, called Mark Cannon. He's not Mark from Rains Park. No, this is a different Mark. This is Mark Cannon, who was listening to other female-fronted, UK-based, crime-based podcasts. And he wanted some fresh meat, so to speak. <laughs> now he's got us and he's loving every minute of it. So welcome, Mark. Welcome as an eavesdropper. We hope we can continue to entertain. So fresh meat, does that mean we're mutton, not lamb? <laughs> Are we a couple of pork chops? Some old Maybe boilers. Maybe some sexy spare ribs. Sexy spare ribs. <laughs> oh, Christ. And one last shout-out is to our contributor and friend Ray he has his own jingle and he wanted to write in about it's a bit old hat now but the Halloween episode which was a couple of episodes ago he made the very valid point Michelle of saying that if the Americans who were duped into believing that the Martians were invading whilst listening to a radio play by Orson Welles the night before Halloween in 1938 if they were duped 
Perhaps it's because they were dumb enough to be listening to a ventriloquist on the radio before it happened. (laughs) Very good point, Ray. I don't know how I didn't pick up on that. Oh, he's a smart cookie, that Ray, isn't he? you got to get up early to fool Ray. And I've got one last shout out. Shouted. It's less a shout out and more of an RIP because we did have the very sad news that our long-term listener, Jen the Hen, a.k.a. Oh, my God. No, oh, my God. You, Jen's still with us. Jen oh is still with God. us. <laughs> I almost fell off my chair. Is this the way you tell me your mother's died? No, but... She's laughing. I am laughing, but it's not funny because you know that on this podcast, there have been tears over our furry friends and yeah. lost loved ones. Oh, and yes. And Jen's longtime companion, Rexy. R.I.P. Rexy the cat. Yeah. R.I.P. Rex. You know, she was a very special little kitty. And I just wanted to pay tribute to another little feline friend who's now in cat heaven. So shout out to you, Rex. Shout out, Rex, from a, from afar. Oh, but yes. thank God. I mean, I'm sorry, but I just thought you were going to say that Jen had popped her clogs and I was not prepared for that. So my heart's still jumping back here. No, no. It gave me a fright. Look, Jen's still alive and kicking and complaining about granny porn. So all is well, okay. Jen. Okay, thank God for that. But I'm just sorry that she's missing her little partner in crime. Sorry to hear that, Jen. Moving swiftly on, speaking about animals, I went on a holiday last week to France again. It's like an Australian driving to Melbourne from New South Wales or something. It's only a few hours from England. And we went to something which is apparently the second biggest theme park in France. The first, of course, being Disneyland Paris. This is called Puy de Fou. Puy de Fou. Puy de Fou. Puy de Fou. It's called Puy de Fou. Have you heard of it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, I did not know how to pronounce it. I had seen it on your Instagram and was like, Puy de what the fuck? It was... (laughs) Quite an interesting little thing. So tell me all about it because de I, I got confused. Well, yeah. it's madness, Michelle. You may have noted by the posts that I was putting up. It is a theme park with no rides. You turn up and you can go to different parts of history, French history, of course. We went first to the Viking show. You walk in. There's a big outdoor stage. There's a set of an old French Gallic village. Back in those days, I don't know which era this is, 1500s, I'm guessing. The youngsters are dancing about, having a great time. Some marriages occur. It's lovely. Then suddenly a horn blows. There's a big water thing. There's a moat. There's there's geese running. There's goats. There's birds (laughs) flying. Seriously. And there's people up in the tower. Then suddenly the Viking ship arrives, actually rolls in, a bit like the Fitzcarraldo, how I explained to you last week's episode with the boats. It rolls in. It's shooting fire. They attack. Lots of amazing trickery and stunts and things. And then that ship gets sunk. But then it comes back up later with people standing on it. I mean, what the fuck? It was insane. I was almost crying by the end. It was amazing. Well, you wouldn't have known because all I saw was pictures of you guys all looking like Jamiroquai with your Viking hats on Viking and whatnot hats. with the horns. Yes. We went to a Roman arena and saw the Gauls being attacked there and having to fight for their lives. I mean, it was amazing. So it's a recommendation. It's a I would up. recommend that. Yeah. The one thing is it's all in French. So you have to kind of guess what's going on unless oh. you know the background. What I would say is that love and the French will always prevail. 
they always won. Love won or the French won, even if in history they may not have actually won. But that's the thing too. You know, history is so subjective. It depends on who's telling the history as to how it is explained. And of course, you know, I think, as you said, the French win, love wins. Maybe yeah. if, if it was told from the Viking perspective, it might be yeah, a little different. A totally different so. story. That's mm. amazing that you should put it like that, Michelle, because that segues very well into the story that I want to tell you today. Today is true crime, true crime time. Because of our listener, Danny, who I shouted out recently, she pointed me in the, in the right direction to find out about this story, which is an Australian true crime story. And it is a mystery because, unfortunately, at the end of it, there is no solid answers as to who done it and it's quite a lot that got done you just gave the game away obviously if it's true crime there's a crime right but subjectiveness is key subjectivity sorry subjectivity subjectivity all right let's call it that if you must we're gonna have this writing in al target will write in and say i've said it wrong it's gonna be on it fair enough but listen leave your subjectiveness at the door for a moment let me try and explain to you this story as best i can But have a listen to this, Michelle. It's 1986. We're on a place called Phillip Island. Do you know it? No. It's a small island town off the coast of uh, Victoria, which is the one with Melbourne at at its capital. And it's linked to the mainland by a bridge. It's a very small community. And it used to be known as Man Island because back in these days, 1986 kind of time, there was a lot of farmland. There's a lot of farm workers. There's the Phillip Island Penguin Show on there. that People go there to see the penguins. And there's also a Grand Prix. So the Cameron family, who were founding shareholders of this Phillip Island Grand Prix, were also wealthy landowners. It's all quite connected. Everybody's quite connected and everybody knows each other on this small island. Okay, I'm just trying to paint a bit of a picture. We've got... Fergus and Vivian Cameron, who are a married couple with two young boys who lived and worked at the family's farm. They were also, this is the Cameron family who had the shares in the Grand Prix. He had brothers and a sister who also lived on the island. They employed a local girl named Beth Bunnard as a farmhand. Now, Beth was new to the island. I think her family had a holiday home on the island, from what I can make out. And she'd moved there after finishing agricultural college in Melbourne. And she was working at the Phillip Island Penguin Parade, which is also where she met Fergus, who this man just couldn't get enough work. He was working all the time. He worked his own farm and he also worked as a ranger at the Phillip Island Penguin Parade. And she met Fergus and they were working together and they became friendly. And eventually Fergus offered Beth a farmhand job, which she did alongside the penguin parades and so did he so these guys were working together all the time it was an open secret in the community that 23 year old beth was having an affair with her 36 year old married boss fergus Hmm. then on monday the 22nd of september this affair had been going on for about two or three years she'd been working at the farm for about i don't know four or five months i'm not sure of all the times again subjectivity There's a lot of different dates and times out there that conflict with this story. Fergus went to Beth's house after work at the Penguin Parade at about 8pm and they spent about an hour or so together. He left around nine. But meanwhile, what Fergus didn't know was that his sister Marnie had called his work looking for him. She was told that he'd knocked off at eight. So she went round to his house to wait for him or to, you know, to see him there. But sadly, it was just his wife there and she didn't know. Mm. She had had a feeling that 
something was amiss with Fergus and Beth. She'd caught them a few days before hugging and she knew that their relationship was no longer physical and it had been going downhill for some time. It was quite rocky. They'd been having difficulty. So she knew something was going on, but he was denying it. But this was the kind of writing on the wall at this point. So her and her sister-in-law, Marnie, were sitting at the table waiting for Fergus, drinking a glass of wine, and then he got home. Marnie left and Vivian lost her shit with Fergus and attacked him with a wine glass, cutting his ear in his back. Apparently this rage went on for about a minute and a half, but then she calmed down enough to be concerned for him, so she took him to hospital Again, calling on Marnie. So Marnie had only just gotten home and taken her coat off by the time she got this phone call from Vivian saying, could you come back, please, and stay with the children? I've got to take him to hospital, Fergus to hospital. I've just glassed him. I've just glassed my husband. I've just glassed my husband. (laughs) She didn't say that. She didn't say that. And that's quite important that she didn't, that no one said, oh, I've just glassed my husband and we're just going to take him into hospital. That's not what was said. But Marnie turned up. She did notice piles of clothes, bloody clothes. Her husband, Ian, was with her. The kids are in bed, thank God. They've noticed piles of clothes and dirty towels covered in blood in various rooms. There's blood on the floor. There's blood in the spare room. Jesus, just from a little nick on the ear. It's not a nick. She went for it. Mm. Well, apparently she went for it. At the hospital, the pair stuck together in their story. They were questioned by the nurse. Do you know, Marnie was also a nurse at this hospital, so everybody knows everybody. This nurse knew the family, and she felt that the pair seemed like presenting a united front, and they wouldn't say what had happened to him. But the nurse was getting agitated. She noticed as he turned around, blood. She lifted his shirt and saw puncture wounds on his back. Vivian said he'd walked through a plate glass door. (sighs) The old story, that old that, that old, old chestnut. Fergus and Vivian then returned home from hospital at about 12.30 and Marnie and Ian went home. Later that night, the Camerons, Fergus and Vivian, they had a chat after Marnie and Ian had gone back. They had a chat about the state of their relationship and it was concluded that the relationship had run its course and that they should divorce. So Vivian drove Fergus over to Marnie and Ian's to stay the night. All quite dramatic in one night, right? Then she gets home, uh, Vivian, back home, and she calls her friend Robin Dixon at 3am, telling her that she had to go to hospital with her husband. Now, bear in mind, they've been back a few hours since then. So she lied to her friend Robin about her whereabouts and said, would you mind coming to watch the children? because we have to go to hospital. Oh. The Dixons came over. They came over. No one was there except the children, so they woke them, put them in the car, drove them. They did notice on on leaving, though, that Vivian's handbag was left on a table by the back door, but there were no adults in the house. Right. Meanwhile, over at Beth's house on that side of the island, a neighbour, and bearing in mind Beth's street is quite remote and there's only about seven houses on this street. So the neighbour, she noticed everything. Also, the neighbour had her sister who lived at the end of the road. So she was always very vigilant when she heard cars going down the road. She spotted a Land Cruiser later that night outside Beth's house uh, parked outside. There's more to that story, but I'll come back to it. So the next morning, right, everyone wakes up on Tuesday morning. The Dixons, who have the Cameron's children are desperately trying to locate the Camerons because they've got to go to work and they've got these two kids. So after several attempts, they finally found Fergus at his sister Marnie's house. Once Fergus realised that the children had been dropped at the Dixons, he became concerned for Beth and Vivian and asked his brother Donald and brother-in-law Ian, Marnie's husband Ian, 
to go round and check on Beth, which the men did early in the morning. So they went round there, opened the door. Well, they didn't have to open the door to Beth's house because her door was ajar, the porch light was on, her two cars were in the same place as they always were in the drive. And they went in and discovered immediately that something was not right here. Beth's body was lying in the doorway of her bedroom, covered up to her nose with what they thought was a sleeping bag, but was actually her duvet or something, I think. So she's completely covered up from the nose down. The guys realised something was amiss, that she was not in a good way. So they left and went to the police station. They didn't call the ambulance? No. And they didn't even lift the duvet to have a look at the injuries to check if there was a pulse. I know, this is something to pin. I'm sorry, but this is demented. Why would you not check? Oh, my God. Okay. They go straight to the police station. They make a very long rambling statement saying she's not in a good way. She's not in a good way is what they said to the policeman there. So then the family have, have found out that she's not in a good way. And the police obviously send, you know, send their team around there to check on her. But meanwhile, Marnie is trying to call Beth on the phone. She's not picking up, obviously. Bizarre. It's a very bizarre story. There's a lot to it. And mm. I, I will say I've just started listening to a Case File Presents podcast, which I will advise you all to go and listen to. I'm halfway <laughs> through. It's very good. The police arrive at the scene at some point and they find Beth's body covered with blood. She's lying on her back on the bedroom floor with her head almost in the doorway, like I said. They lift the duvet, thank God, that was covering her and discovered that there was injuries on her from her nose down. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Her nightshirt had been lifted up to her neck, so it's assumed that she was attacked while she was in bed and her body had been stabbed repeatedly. She had defensive wounds on her hands, her elbow and her ankle, and her face also bore knife wounds, Mm -hmm. and she had a broken tooth, and her throat had been cut. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Apologies for the descriptive crime scene. Around the body were cigarette butts and a knife, and in the bathroom there were blood-stained paper towels in the sink. But worse than that, Michelle, trigger warning, right? Carved into her chest was the letter A. And police believed that the A was a symbol from the book, The Scarlet Letter, which was written by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it's about a woman who was forced to wear the letter A as punishment for adultery. Right. And it's known that Vivian had read the book, right? Oh, okay. So one of the detectives on the case described this attack as a vicious and frenzied one. Fuck yeah. Yeah. And former detective Rory O'Connor said about the A on the chest, he said, you're talking about four slashes one way, 10 slashes the other and five across. That's not someone gently carving an A. Sorry about that descriptive thing there. That is someone who is like in anger going, Mm. fuck, fuck you and slicing and slashing and possibly it's not nice oh well in my humble opinion there's a lot of questions i mean i am so up in the air about this but you'll find out what i think in a moment in a discussion a few days later the police felt the family were behaving strangely the fact that the men didn't seem to acknowledge that beth was dead on first finding her and then not coming to her aid i mean that is like i said pin that that is a big question mark Why behave like that? It's very odd. It's against every kind of human instinct. Mm -hmm. 
That afternoon, officers found Fergus Cameron's Land Cruiser parked near the Phillip Island Bridge. In it was a knife that had blood on it and Vivian's handbag was also inside the vehicle. And if you remember, that was last seen by the Dixons at Vivian's house at 3am. Yeah, by the back door. Yeah. The handbag would have to have been placed inside the Land Cruiser after the Dixons had left the house and before the Land Cruiser was found at 4pm. But there was no sign of Vivian. In fact, Michelle, she was never seen again. She is now missing, presumed dead. Oh my God. So Beth's gone and Vivian's gone. Yeah. Fuck. The ultimate upshot of this was that there was an inquest in 1988 which found that it was likely that Vivian Cameron killed Beth in a personal attack before jumping off the local bridge. And the coroner stated, although her body has not been found, I am satisfied that she is dead and that she leapt from the bridge into the water. That's about Vivian. So basically, Vivian's taken the rap posthumously for Beth's murder. But in the absence of both women to explain what happened, you've only got one person's word for it. Fergus. Fergus. So weird things have happened that have been discounted by the police because it doesn't fit with their ultimate line of inquiry. Yeah. There was a friend of Vivian's called Glenda Frost. Now, Vivian worked at the place called the Community House, which I assume is kind of like a volunteer place or maybe not where a load of women from the community who worked there. And this friend of Vivian's worked with her, Glenda Frost. She got a phone call on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. from Vivian, which is six hours after the coroner decided that she had jumped. What they're saying then is she called the friends to come and collect the kids at 3 a.m. Yeah, but where did she go? Well, according to the police, she just jumped off the bridge. But then she left her bag. She had to come back and get her bag. Also... Then she made a phone call. They told this woman, Glenda Frost, yeah. your phone call, it was mistaken. She remembers it very well. They spoke about some patchwork gift that they were going to give to one of the ladies who was leaving the community house. They talked about it. Not only that, Glenda had a guest at the house at the time who also verified the phone call, who also knew Vivian. Both people in the room verified this phone call and knew it was Vivian. Absolutely. Phone records? No. Unfortunately, those days... Phone records just showed mm. if it was an STD call. So these women, yes. she's like, oh, it's Vivian. And the other person's going, oh, okay, say hi. That kind of thing. Hi, Viv. At, yeah. yeah, at 10 a.m. in the morning. During the 1990s, DNA testing found that Vivian's blood was on the suspected murder weapon. Back in the 80s, at this point, it was still in its infancy DNA testing. So they had to wait Mm. till the mid-90s, early mid-90s, before they could get some more conclusive evidence from the blood spatter and the knife and things. They suspect that the murder weapon was the knife that was found in the Land Cruiser. It had Vivian's blood on it, but no blood of Vivian nor her DNA was found on or around Beth's body. And that doesn't add up because if she had committed this violent murder... And you said that Beth had defensive wounds. Yeah. So everyone knows if you're getting attacked, you scratch scratch your attacker so yeah. their DNA is under your fingernails. But there's no body Top to tip. prove it. Yeah. So there was none of Beth's blood on the towel found in the bathroom either, only Vivian's. How could that be? Hmm. Beth died violently. She was covered in blood. Yeah. There was no transference of Beth's blood onto the suspected murderer or onto the weapon or anything. No clothing fibres of Vivian's either was found at the scene of Beth's murder or in the Land Cruiser. 
Okay. None of Beth's blood was found in the, in the Land Cruiser. So nowhere that Vivian was supposed to be was any trace of DNA from Beth. I mean, if you've just committed this horrendous crime and you've carved an A into their chest, yeah. there's blood splatters. Come on. Yeah. Weird. The cigarette butts which were around the body, strangely, mm-hmm. were Vivian's apparently. They were her brand. Plus there were a few drops of Vivian's blood as well. But still, why wasn't Beth's blood anywhere apart from on and around her body? On her body. Basically, there's a distinct lack of evidence to prove that Vivian had anything to do with Beth's murder. And regarding Vivian disappearing by taking her own life, historically, there's been no suicides from that bridge in the area. And the drop from the bridge is about 10 metres high. So surviving a fall from the bridge is possible. Plus, yeah. Police were in that water ASAP as soon as they discovered the Land Cruiser. It was a good, you know, day later. But the searchers didn't reveal any remains or clothing, nothing washed up on shore, nothing at all. No sign, no trace. No foot in a trainer, nothing. Nothing. Friends say she was totally devoted to her sons and wouldn't have left them. Also, no note was left. But in Fergus's statement to police, he says that when they discussed the divorce the night before, before... Um, Vivian drove him around to Marnie's house mm. after they returned from hospital. Vivian and he had decided, Vivian even offered this. She said she'll leave her job, she'll move herself back to Melbourne and grant Fergus full custody of both boys. But Fergus remembered, she said, don't be too strict with them and don't think that Beth will be a great mother. She just offered that. What? Yeah. No, sorry. Anyone who's a mum. We've only I'm got not. one person's word to take for this, you see. Yeah, exactly. I think that sounds unlikely. Even in convenient grief and anger and shock, you mm. don't you don't just give your kids up. No. So there's an author of a crime book called The Philip Island Murder. Her name is Vicky Petratus. She wrote this book in 1993 along with a journalist from I can't remember. I may remember later. She spent two years investigating this case and she also is the person who I'm listening to right now on the Case File series on Spotify. So it's really interesting. She's got a lot of interesting stuff to say about this murder. She said that while researching, the islanders all closed ranks, and especially the family. They didn't want to discuss it at all. And she discovered that Beth was popular and that there weren't a lot of women on the island, like I'd said before. And that Beth had quite a few admirers. In fact, there was one guy in particular who used to come and mow her lawn. But rather than feel scared by this, she was just annoyed because she used to record conversations of herself. Her and her friends used to record and send tapes to her friend who'd moved to London. Oh, hmm. OK. So there's some casual convos, co- casual convos yeah. and where she's saying... There's this guy who keeps cutting my bloody grass. Yep. Stop cutting my grass. Yep. I'm just going to tell him to fuck off. And she said she yelled at him. He seemed a bit pissed off, but I don't think she was threatened by him at all. Mm. So as I'd said to you, they did re-examine the crime scene. Once DNA testing became more prevalent, but um, Vicky had said that it was determined that Vivian's blood was on the handle of the knife kept in evidence. But Vicky Petratus does not think that that is the knife that was used in the murder. She thinks that there were some unusual double cuts in Beth's clothing, which were possibly made by a different knife. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of discrepancies in the case. The family are the ones that seem to be giving a lot of evidence which was used in the coronial inquest. I don't know what really happened, and it's hard to pin anything down. I do know that Glenda Frost's phone call was dismissed as her getting it all wrong, but there is a Reddit user called Castronathan who has a theory, and I'm going to quickly tell it to you. 
Their theory is this. Beth told her friends she was going to give Fergus an ultimatum the night she died. That's Beth, right? Mm -hmm. She was sick of the toing and froing, whatever. She was going to tell him it's over. Vivian had spent the last few months dieting and freshening her appearance in an attempt to save her marriage. This is true. This is reported in Vicky Petratus's story. Catherine Nathan goes on to say, I think Fergus killed Beth after she gave him an ultimatum. She was initially stabbed in the shoulder in bed, but she fought back and he is injured, which is why he slit her throat. He's a farmer. He goes home to tell his wife that he broke off the affair and Beth attacked him. Vivian goes with him to the hospital. So the injuries on Fergus, this person is saying the injuries on Fergus were never made by Vivian. They were made by Beth. But wouldn't Marnie have seen this? Yes, but also Marnie's the sister. She's closed ranks. And she's closed ranks. Yep. yep. She's protecting her brother, the family. Yeah. The people who can discount this story don't exist anymore. Are all in on it. Either are gone or they're in on it. Yeah. So mm. back to Castro Nathan's story. So Vivian goes with him to the hospital. That's why they seem thick as thieves. You know, she's protecting her husband. She, they seem like, a, you know, a unit, a couple. They were looking at each other with love and care. And then this is what the nurse who spoke to Vicky Petratus says. Yep. Then they return home. Vivian talks about leaving and taking the children. Fergus begs her to stay. They agree to talk in the morning. Vivian does not want to stay in the house in case Beth comes or calls looking for Fergus. Now she thinks that Beth is wild and crazy and she's capable of attacking Fergus. Vivian rings her friend Robin to get the children. She drops Fergus at his sister's and she stays the rest of the night at the community house. Don't know how this person figures that out. Well, he's just filling in some blanks, isn't he? So this mm. gives Fergus and family the rest of the night to work out the story. Stage Beth's body with the A on the chest. That's staged. That was put back later, they think. And the scene with the cigarette butts. I mean, if she's gone there to attack someone, Vivian, that is, yep. she is not going to stop to have five or six cigarettes and like leave them lying around. No, she's not. I mean, for God's sake, who has time? No. I'm just going to have my ciggy five yeah, times. Exactly. Just, no. So the next day, Vivian goes home thinking the affair is over and that she can save her marriage. She rings her friend while waiting for Fergus to come home. That's why he says she stayed at the community centre. Mm -hmm. I think the deliberate discovery of Beth's body and then later the Land Cruiser was timed to keep attention away from the farm where Vivian was murdered and her body disposed. I forgot to mention in my story, and I'll wrap it up, but Marnie was the first person to notice the Land Cruiser was parked by the bridge. Marnie was? Yep. Okay. No one had seen it all day. The police hadn't seen it all day. No one had spotted it. Then suddenly, oh, there it is. They've got two cars. Oh, the sister. The sister notices. One Holden, mm. which is what uh, Vivian traditionally drove, which she drove him to the hospital in, I think, and the Land Cruiser, which is usually his car. And actually, early morning on Tuesday, two separate part-time workers, one noticed the Land Cruiser parked by the bridge at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning and wondered, oh, I wonder what yeah. that person's doing, and thought nothing more of it. The other person saw a two-stroke little motorbike driving away from the bridge. Oh, okay. So someone's gone and dumped the handbag in there. Yeah, put the bag in the car, put the knife in the car, parked yep. the car, made it look like she jumped off. She's never jumped off. She's probably been fed to the pigs or something. I'm sorry about that. That's disgusting, but, you know. They're farmers. Exactly. The only question I have with that theory, I think it's a great theory, but why wouldn't she spend the night at home with her children? Why would she leave her handbag if she wasn't at home? I think she was done away with previous to that. I don't know. Maybe. And I don't know how they got that phone call. Well, that's the thing. Like That phone call is one of the things that is a twist in the story because she, A, has to have been alive. Yeah. But then, B, we don't know how long it took for 
the friends to come to the house to get the children. They say they were called at 3am. Maybe they didn't get there till 3.30 or quarter to four. Here's something. It's Marnie and Ian who are saying that Fergus was dropped to them at 3am around that time. Yes. So Marnie and Ian are not trustworthy in this story, potentially. Potentially, yes. You don't want to get sued here. No, but the thing is, you know, it's family and families do close ranks. They protect their own. When something like this happens, you have to think on your feet. Mm. So they've probably come up with the story, realised the story has some holes in it. They've added, they've thought, shit, we need to do this, this and this to make the timelines and our actions look legit. That's the thing, unless it really happened it's hard. It's hard to recreate yeah. something that actually makes sense. Basically, what's the upshot with Fergus here? Because how come there's no fingers being pointed at him here? You know, where's your wife? Where's yeah. your girlfriend? Yeah. How come you're the only one? Only one that... left standing. Exactly. So ultimately, Beth, who was, by all accounts, bubbly, full of life, a loyal friend, good fun. She would give most things a go. Tragically lost her life at age 23. And for those who believe that Vivian was the culprit, which some probably do, I don't know what Beth's family think about this or what, you know, how they're able to reconcile the whole, you know, losing their daughter. But according to Vivian's friends, because none of her family are alive anymore to advocate for her or to, to talk for, on her behalf, she wasn't the sort of person to, to take her anger out on a young, naive girl. In fact, she had previously told Marnie, according to Marnie, she knew that something was up with Fergus and Beth and she said if it hadn't been Beth, it would have been someone else. She knew the sort of man her husband was. I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast. You as a woman with instincts, you know when something's wrong in your relationship. You know when your partner's yeah. cheating and you don't want to believe and you you try and think, oh, I'm I'm the one who's just seeing things where there's nothing to be seen. But then you find yourself going through their phone and you find what you're looking for and you think, fuck it. I knew it. I knew it. So this woman, yeah, you know, I'm sure she had a strong instinct that nothing was right in the relationship. Yeah. Something was going on. Back then there probably were no mobile phones because this is what, the mid-80s? 86. But to me, it does seem like we've got a small, isolated community who are protecting their own. There's no evidence, no bodies. Like you say, feed to the pigs. I mean, there was a show called Gentleman Jack and they fed the body to the pigs. The only thing that Happens was left all the time. was a belt buckle. And that's how they realised what had happened. They saw oh the belt dear. buckle. Goodness. Well, you've just given a spoiler alert for that. But I will say that also Vivian wasn't a part of the community as much as the Camerons were, that's Marnie and brother Donald and Fergus. So when she first joined the family, she mm. was also an outsider. So right. if things are going to go wrong, the Cameron family are all going to stick together. Now, this is just speculation on our behalf. Obviously, the coroner found differently and they wouldn't take various things into account. Vicky Petratus was given the cold shoulder when she went to the island to to write her book. Some people say just let it go, but... It's all a bit deliverance, isn't it? It is a bit deliverance and it's a, it's very fascinating. And it also reminds me a little bit of the one that we always talk about, the other Australian murder mystery with nobody, Teacher's Pet. Lynn's Law. Lynn Dawson, Chris Dawson, yeah. Lynn Dawson, yes. We don't know what the truth is and maybe we never will yeah unless there's a body anyone interested should read this book by the sounds of it yes michelle will leave a link i'm gonna show note the shit out of that nice 
Thank you so much. Pleasure. My brain is wearing. I've got a lot of questions, but not for you. I'm going to have to look it up myself. Because <laughs> I don't have the bloody answers, that's for sure. Extra, extra, read all about Give it. Give me the scoop. He's dropping wind and there's no doubt about it. He's dropping. Now, Jordy, I think I misread the memo on what we were talking about. Okay. I think I just read the word mystery and uh, and I thought, oh, okay. So, and interestingly, you you know, we always talk about when it comes to true crime, DNA testing and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, today I actually have a medical mystery for you. Oh, gosh. Is it going to be gory? No, there's no gore. Okay. It's just a bit shocking. So... Mm. I'm going to take you back to 2002 when a woman called Lydia Fairchild, she was 26 years old, and she and her long-term partner, Jamie Townsend, they decided to split because even though they had two kids, the relationship had been rocky for a while. They'd separated loads in the past, but they always ended up giving it another go. Mm. But this time round, despite the fact that Lydia was pregnant with their third child. In the end, Lydia and Jamie, they decided to call it quits for good and properly end the relationship. And I guess emotionally, it was a good call for everyone. But for Lydia financially, she was struggling. And the breakdown of the relationship meant she was in a tough position. She didn't have any money to bring these kids up and get back on her own two feet. So to get through the rough patch after she and Jamie had gone their separate ways, uh, Lydia applied for some kind of, you know, financial aid from the government. And I don't know what kind it was. It was probably some kind of, you know, single parent welfare. Where is this? So this is in America, in the state of Washington, And so, you know, she just applied for help, basically, to look after the kids. And as I understand it, in America, the process and requirements for getting financial help, it's different state by state. And like I said, Lydia lived in Washington state. And in 2002, apparently, in order to apply for this government assistance at the time, it was routine for families to have to do DNA testing to prove paternity because I imagine you know Jamie also probably had no money and she was probably also coming after him for child support in order to go after the father you you know you have to prove paternity right okay so apparently this was quite routine Jamie and the kids had to take these DNA tests and I think it was just a cheek swab I think Lydia had to also do it, basically just so they all could get onto the next stage of this application mm. for, you know, money from, you know, welfare. welfare from the government. Yeah. So, you know, they all did that and they were all sort of waiting. And Lydia gets a phone call asking her to go to the office of the Washington State Prosecutor to go over the DNA results. Yeah. And she thought, okay, fine. This is probably just a normal part of the financial help application process but when she walked into the office she said the mood was off Mm -hmm. and something was wrong I think at first she just thought what the fuck is this is Jamie not the father of my kids like what the hell have they found with this paternity test and you know she knew Jamie was the father so she just could not work what was going on and you know she thought 
surely this DNA test is going to prove his paternity. And she was right. You know, the people interviewing her at the prosecutor's office told her that the DNA tests showed that Jamie was 99% the father. Yeah. But the problem wasn't Jamie. Oh, my God. The problem was her. Oh, how? The DNA tests showed that she wasn't was the mother. not the children's mother. What the fuck? And Lydia is listening to all this thing, kind of laughing because she, she's thinking this is a bit of a joke because this woman... She must remember giving birth to them. She gave birth to those kids, you know. Jamie knocked her up and she, you know, grew these little humans inside her and she pushed these kids (laughs) out. So I guess to her, having gone through the agony of childbirth twice... Yeah. Well, what they were saying to her, it seemed totally ridiculous. Except they were really, really serious. And they began firing questions at her like... Are you actually Lydia Fairchild? Who are you really? Where did you get these kids from? Yeah. Whose kids are these? And she's like, what are you talking about? These are my kids. Why would you say that? They were there saying DNA tests showed there is no match between your DNA and the DNA of your kids. And she's like, come on, come on. There's a mistake. You need to go back and check the DNA results. Yeah. And apparently a social worker turned to her and said... Nope. DNA is 100% foolproof. DNA doesn't lie. What? So she's sitting there sort of at the beginning thinking, this is a fucking joke. And yes, by the end of it, she's thinking, they're going to take my kids away from me. Not only was Lydia denied any financial assistance for her children, Mm. she was now the subject of a criminal investigation. Oh, my God. She was accused of fraud of claiming benefits for other people's children (gasps) they also threw at her that she was uh, potentially taking part in a surrogacy scam Uh. and that she had faked the birth records of her two children the state prosecutors did order that her kids be taken away from her because they did not believe that (gasps) she was the mother and the thing is i I, at the beginning, told you that she was pregnant with the third child of her and Jamie when they split. Uh, So she's going through all of this. While pregnant. pregnant, Yeah. While pregnant, potentially losing her two kids, pregnant as well. This is a nightmare. On the skids. Yeah, on the skids with no money, partners long gone, and they're trying to take her kids away from her. This is a disaster. Who can help her? Well... The judge said, okay, listen, we clearly can see that you're not the mother of of these children, but you're telling us that you gave birth to these two kids. And so what we're going to do is we are basically going to let you hold on to your kids until you give birth to this third kid. Mm. Well, the judge ordered that there had to be a court observer present at the birth yeah for the whole birth not allowed to leave not even once yeah I know can you imagine what a fucking ordeal and then they would test yep they had to take blood samples immediately from her immediately from that child this observer had to testify to the legitimacy of everything that they had seen okay well thank god she's pregnant in a way thank god because so basically this poor person had to sit there and watch this baby come out and Mm. then all the tests being done Mm. 
So they did all the blood tests, the DNA tests, everything. Two weeks later, after mm-hmm. this baby was born, the DNA tests came back. And? She's not the mother of that child. Oh, my God. So that vindicates her, her clearly. Yeah, well, She can keep yes. her children. Yes, but the thing is, like, what the fuck is going on? There's an anomaly. There really, there is an anomaly, right? So basically the prosecutors on both sides, because remember, she's part of a criminal case now. They're throwing everything at her. These court approved test results come back and everyone is like flummoxed. Mm. No one's got any clue as to what's going on. And neither did Lydia. But she's got lawyers and a breakthrough in this case came when her defense attorney began searching through old medical files and they came across a very, very similar case from a few years earlier of a a 52-year-old woman from Boston called Karen Keegan. Now, Karen Keegan, she had been living a life, everything was fine, she had kids, whatever – But she got really ill and she needed a kidney transplant. Mm. And doctors turned to her adult sons to see if they might be a match as a donor for her for this kidney transplant. Thing is, when her sons did all the genetic testing and the results came back to see who would be the best match to give kidney to their mother, it showed that there was no connection between their DNA Mm. and the mum's DNA. And this was obviously disturbing and heartbreaking for everyone because not only did these sons... They wanted to help. Who wanted to help. Not only were they denied helping their mum, they're now thinking, who the fuck am I? (laughs) Is this really my mum? You know, at a time when she is gravely ill. So, you know, they couldn't help. They couldn't help their mum, but also they've got loads of questions. Sure. And they got to the bottom of this case. It turns out Karen is what is called a shimmerer. Oh, sounds like a shapeshifter or something. Well, do you know what? It's funny because it, it is a term that has its roots in Greek mythology. Because in Greek mythology, a shimmerer is a creature. Oh, a chimera. Chimera. Chimera, is that how you say That's it? That's how you pronounce that. Sorry, I thought you meant like shimmering, shimmering. I thought it was no, a, a shimmerer. I've been, I've been reading this just thinking, oh, a shimmerer. <laughs> A chimera. Is that how you say it? A shape-shifting animal in Greek mythology. A, I did not know how to say it uh, because it's spelled C-H-I-M-E-R-A. Right. I thought it was a chimera or a <laughs> ch- chimera? chimera. Anyway, chimera. chimera. Okay. Never heard this term before. I'll take it might have an the... alternative pronunciation, but that's how I know to say it. Oh, wow. Well, you probably know more than me, but... In Greek mythology, a chimera, chimera, chimera. Chim- yes, it, chimera, chimera. This is coming back to me. There was a TV show back in the nineties that was called Chimera, and I think it was about someone who didn't exist because they didn't have an, a DNA profile. Is that what it is? No. Well, what this is is a chimera is a creature that is a mutation of more than one animal. That's it. So what happened in Karen's case was that after she was conceived, right? So Mm. when Karen was conceived, the female egg that was to become Karen became fused with another female egg in her mother's womb. And as a result, the fused egg that 
ultimately became Karen yeah. contained Other. two entirely separate lots of DNA, <gasps> which were combined in Karen. Oh my goodness! And what this means is that biologically speaking, she was three people. Karen is two. In, well, she's two people. Oh. She has two DNA signatures. That's incredible. And this is exactly what happened to Lydia Fairchild. Sure, she's a she's a chimera. So they did more testing on Lydia and her family and they found that the DNA of Lydia's kids matched the DNA of Lydia's mother to the extent that, you know, she was an acceptable Mm. DNA match as a grandmother. Yes. So they found that although the DNA in Lydia's skin and hair did not match her children's DNA, when they did a cervical smear, the DNA from her cervix was a match to her children's okay. DNA. Right. So she's been poked and prodded and her mum and her kids are all being poked yes. and prodded. Oh, my God. So the DNA from the cheek swab is a different DNA. To the cervix. To what's down in her cervix, right? right? Turns out in the womb, Lydia had been a twin, <gasps> a non-identical twin, a fraternal yeah. twin. And she was carrying her own DNA and the DNA of her unborn twin. Oh, my goodness. So, in effect, her unborn twin is the mother of her kids. Oh, my God. This is crazy. Science is so magical, isn't it? But it's crazy. Yeah. And so, obviously, like, it's a medical mystery solved. She's a chimera. (laughs) But I wanted to look into this a bit more because... It just seems so bizarre. So I dug around a little bit in the science of of being a chimera and I found it really fascinating. The basic definition of what a chimera is, is a person whose body has cells that are genetically distinct. So two. Uh And I didn't know this, but apparently loads of people's bodies contain at least a few living cells from another person. That's mad. I wonder what I've got. I'm really, I really want to do a 23andMe. I would love to on one hand, but it's owned by Google or something. Oh, so, so it goes against your privacy. It does. It really does. So in many ways, 23andMe is amazing. But it's definitely rare for a person to have an equal mix of cells from two different people in the case of Karen and Lydia. And look, biologists in China are mucking around with you know, engineering hybrids huh? of, of animals, oh. right? Yes. God. And they're doing tests on this and creating chimeras by mixing cells from different species. Why? They've added monkey cells to the organs of pigs. Why? And I don't know how it turned out. I don't know. Stop it's just that. weird. I know. But look, going back to Lydia's situation, all animals, including humans, develop from a single fertilized egg. This should mean that every single cell in our bodies should have exactly the same genome Mm. but obviously for chimeras this isn't the case and there where dna happens because two embryos that would normally develop into non-identical twins fuse in the womb so the chimera has parts of their body that is one person and parts that are another person Mm -hmm. in in terms of dna right people with this form of chimerism they don't look weird i mean they might apparently have different colors. I was going to say that. And this made me wonder, was David, David Bowie, Bowie a chimera? R.I.P. David. But um, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder. It would be. I would love to do. I would love for them to do some DNA testing and find out. But anyway, they also have different colored patches of skin on their bodies. Ah. 
Yes. I've got that. Are you a chimera? I might be a chimera. I have got a small patch of skin that looks like my mother's because my mother, my biological mother, is much darker than me and she has this kind of dark skin with dark kind of freckles on it and I've got a tiny patch that looks just like hers on my lower back. It's a birthmark. Yes. Like a little freckly. And and all her skin is like that on her back. Gosh, that's really interesting, isn't it? Well, put a pin in that because, yes, chimeras have different patches of skin, coloured patches. And if the chimera is a mix of male and female, they can turn out to be a hermaphrodite. Oh, that's how that happens. Yes, or have problems with their reproductive organs. But generally, if you're a chimera, you won't know it because you will seem pretty normal Mm -hmm. unless you're a hermaphrodite, obviously. Or you do a 23andMe and they come back and say, you got no DNA. Exactly. It's only by accident that most people find this out. Now... Another thing I read, and as a mother, I think you'll be interested in this. Most mothers have cells from their babies Makes sense. growing in different parts of their body after pregnancy. That makes total sense. Yeah, and these cells can survive for at least 40 years inside you. Oh, and that's God. that's called microchimerism. And it can happen in reverse too, that cells from the mother and hmm. maybe even the kids that were born before you Mm. right yeah they can get into the bodies of newly born babies so they are also micro chimeras right so for example your son might have cells from your daughter and you in his body yes just through got it being born yeah yeah crazy shit isn't it yes but look i'll just wrap up by saying june 2014 a couple in Washington, again, Washington. Bloody Washington. What the hell's going on? They're full of chimeras. <laughs> chimera here, chimera there. <laughs> I know what it is. I'm a dickhead. Anyway, this couple, this poor couple, they've never been named by the media because, you know, of privacy concerns and yeah. confidentiality of medical records. But anyway, this couple had been to a fertility clinic. And, you know, they'd provided their sperm and their egg and, you know, basically IVF. And they had a son. Baby was born completely healthy, except his blood type didn't match the blood type of either of his parents. And this couple were kind of freaking out because they're like, what the fuck's happened here? We gave you our egg. We gave you our sperm. What happened? So they did a little at-home paternity test and discovered that the father wasn't the father. And Oof. they were devastated. They were like, yeah. they thought that a little bit like the medical fraud that we had covered in a previous episode, they thought Dr. Daddy, Dr. Daddy, or they just like got the sperm mixed up. And now who the hell is this kid? Um, so mm. they hired a lawyer and they did a proper test, not just the at-home paternity test, but like a proper one at the labs. Same thing. Not the daddy. Huh. Yeah. Huh. And this, you know, this test was done at this lab, which does around 400,000 paternity tests every year for like legal, immigration cases, criminal cases, and they always yeah. use a cheek swab. In 24% of cases, they find that the man isn't the dad, right? Well, I think it's fairly clear to say that the cheek swabs aren't completely accurate. You need to go right up the jacksie. Right up the jacksie. What do you do, though, if you're a man? Like where... Up the up the old I don't know <laughs> up the old eye. The, I don't 
don't up know. Up the Khyber Pass. I don't, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Up the, the ding dong, the eye of the ding dong. Who knows? Anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> pop a little swap in there. But anyway. <laughs> the eye of the ding dong. <laughs> and that's a medical term. What do you call that? I call that my eye. The eye of my ding dong. <laughs> Doctor, and that's doctor backed that term. Anyway, this poor couple were freaking out. They really thought the fertility clinic had made the mistake with their sperm. Yeah. So they went there and they're like, Can you explain to me what the hell's going on here? And they said, No, it couldn't have been a mistake because he was the only white man to donate sperm that day. All the other donors had been black and the child looked white. So they were like, No, it's not our fault. Okay. So the couple did a 23andMe test uh-huh. and bizarrely their results came back and they said that the father was not the father, he was the uncle to this child. <gasps> Turns uh, out he's a chimera, he's a chimera. and the father of his child is was the him. twin brother who was, never been bo- who was never born. Never born. Yes. Okay. So this guy had patches of... Two-toned striped skin, which is, like I said before, often a sign of being a chimera. And in fact, I read a story about a woman called Taylor Mule who has this massive birthmark down the front of her stomach. And Mm. for years, she thought it was just a birthmark. Turns out she is basically her own twin sister and her birthmark is what was left behind on her body when she absorbed oh. her twin in her oh. mother's womb. Oh, my God. So, you know, the upshot here, people, is... There is no upshot. It's all horrific. It is horrific. But the upshot here is if you've got some stripy two-toned skin or some weird birthmark yeah. and someone tries to take your kids away from you because you are not a genetic match to your kids, that's what's going Tell on. Tell them to go up the eye of the ding <laughs> Dong. <laughs> the eye of the ding dong. Forget that cheek swab. Go straight to the source. Eye of the ding dong. <laughs> right up the jacksy. Get a 23 of me. Get your DNA testing. Boom. You're probably a chimera. And all will be yeah. fine. Yeah. So that's, and that's, that's my medical mystery. Medical story. fact from Nurse Michelle Margarita to you, dear listeners. Now you know. Now we all know something we didn't know before. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So that's it. My story. (laughs) Thanks, Michelle. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I think I speak for all of our listeners now when I say, what would we do without you and your medical facts? It is a fact. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Johnny, look, there's nothing more to be said right now. Nothing at all. Apart from, obviously, the usual, which is wherever you are. Whatever you do. Just... Keep, keep eavesdropping. Eavesdropping.